Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bonjour, bienvenue la série de sermons de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you'll hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Please check it out. God bless you and take care. Good morning. Today I am starting the series on John, the Gospel of John. And so I'm going to be reading the first 14 verses of this Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, Full of grace and truth. I uh, was thinking about this sermon this week, and I realized I've never preached on the Gospel of John. I've been preaching for 44 years, and I've never preached on the Gospel of John, except for my first real sermon. And I remember that week, 44 years ago, I was an intern. Uh, a youth pastor intern at Faith Chapel in Huntsville, Alabama, and the senior pastor scared me to death and asked me to preach And uh, on a Sunday morning. My, some of you know about my first sermon on a Wednesday night, but this was Sunday morning. This was the second sermon, actually. And I remember reading this. I, it was my first actual Bible study as a Christian. And I kept reading the first chapter of John, and every time I read the chapter, the Spirit fell on me. And I just felt like I was on fire. And the next day I studied again, and I was on fire. And the next day I studied again, and I was on fire. And I realized this this chapter had become so precious to me, it's almost like I couldn't put into words what it meant to me. But we're going to try it anyway. 
John is unique among the Gospels. This book is not unique just because it mentions many miracles that the other Gospels don't mention or many words that Jesus spoke that the other Gospels don't mention, or just because it covers events that are not in the other three Gospels. But this Gospel is unique because of its basic approach to Jesus. You see, the other Gospels build up to the divinity of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke let us see Jesus as he opened the eyes of his disciples, step by step, miracle by miracle, revelation by revelation, until at the end of it, you hear Thomas proclaim, my Lord and my God. It took the whole, for the other three Gospels, it took the whole book to get there. John does just the opposite. John doesn't lead us to the divinity of God, he says right up front. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He starts with the divinity of God. John was writing to a Greek world. And in Greek philosophy, what kept the universe in order was the logos, the word. The Greeks said the logos was the will and mind of God. This mind or logic created the universe and kept it running predictably. They, everyone believed in the logos. But then John stuns his audience, both Jew and Greek, by saying this logos, this thing that created and supervised the universe, came as a person. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greeks didn't like it because the Greeks considered anything physical fallen and inherently evil, and that included a human body. The Logos would never debase itself or himself to become a human body. And the Jews didn't like it either because they believed in the transcendence of God. God was so great. How could you fit all that power and all that glory into a mere human body? So the Jews didn't like it either. And yet, John insists that all that God was came wrapped in human flesh and came to us as a human being. NRK, ain halagas, kai halagas, prostantheon. That is Greek, and all I remember of it, of the first verse. I took a year of Greek, that's the remnants. <laughs> if you want to understand, Jesus though, said, if you want to understand the heart and will and mind of God, look at Jesus, picture Jesus, study Jesus, John says. He stepped into our world. His life answers the questions forever of who is God? What is he like? What does he expect? What is he about? The Logos, the final revelation of God, came to us, John writes, and we beheld his glory. He, we actually saw it with our own eyes. We heard it with our own ears. We touched it with our own hands. The word became flesh. Where did John get this from? He got it from Jesus himself. For instance, Jesus designated himself as the Son of Man 82 times in the Gospels. 80 times he conferred that title on himself. For first century Jews listening to this would have caused outrage. Jew, Jewish listeners were familiar with the origin of the, son, origin of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Daniel has a vision in Daniel 7. And he says, he saw one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is the one that shall not be destroyed. 
Jesus said, that's me. He said, that's me at least 80 times in the Gospels and probably a whole lot more than that. And that would have driven his Jewish audience crazy. Who do you think you are? Jesus claimed to be more than that. Not just the Son of Man as they understood it. Jesus claimed that he was able to forgive sins, which they considered blasphemy. Only God had the right to forgive sins. He claimed to exist when Abraham was alive 1,400 years earlier. He commanded his followers to pray in his name. Jesus claimed to be the temple of God where humanity and God meet. They met in him. He claimed authority over the Sabbath, the holiest of days. He said his words. Boy, you can't get more authoritative than this. He claimed his words would outlast heaven and earth and that all authority and power in heaven and on earth had been given to him. By the way, those are the very words which got Jesus crucified. Those are the words that got him labeled blasphemer and hung on a cross. But he would not recant them. This is who Jesus said he was. And then look at the miracles Jesus performed. The four Gospels depict approximately 36 specific miracles, and they talk about many more that were not recorded. He changed water into wine. We'll be getting to that soon enough. I mean grape juice. He changed water into grape juice. He took control of raging storms. He restored vision to the blind. He commanded to demons to leave, and they left. He straightened deformed legs. He touched deaf ears, and the first thing they heard was his voice. Around 120 A.D., Quadratus wrote to the emperor Hadrian, defending Christianity. And he said this, again, this is in 120 A.D. The last apost- Jesus died in approximately 32 or 33 A.D., So this is a long time after Jesus died, and the apostle John died around between 90 and 100 A.D., so all the apostles are gone. But listen to this quote. He said, the words of our Savior were were lasting, for the works of our Savior were lasting, for they were genuine. Those who were healed and those who were dead are still with us, not merely while the Savior was on earth, but after the Savior's death. They were alive for quite a while so that some of them lived even to our day. You want to believe in a miracle? Just talk to a person who Jesus raised from the dead and you'll believe in a miracle. You want to believe in a miracle? Some, just talk to the person. You know, I would have loved to have seen, and I think this is essentially, you know, what Palm Sunday is about. When Jesus, when they were throwing their garments and, and, and palm leaves before Jesus, I think that started as a big testimony service. And all the people that Jesus healed and made see and made walk got together and said, let's have a worship service. Liberal scholars keep trying to whittle Jesus down to a manageable size. They say he was a good man, he was, but he was a misunderstood rabbi. Or Jesus was merely a social revolutionary. They pick and choose what they consider logical and realistic and rationalize the rest of the verses that seem too radical or too outlandish. That especially includes uh, verses that are too supernatural. They gut Scripture with their logic. And then through that, they don't realize they've just neutered the gospel. They, in essence, create God in their own image. Isn't it a shame that certain liberal scholars cannot let Jesus be greater than they are? Jesus was just a nice guy with some really good insights. Jesus, in the end, looks an awful, like the, awful lot alike the liberal scholars themselves. We are left with a very wise and very weak Jesus. But Jesus will have none of it. 
John tells us that he saw the glory of God. He said, we saw God walking around changing people and changing situations and nature itself if it served his purposes. We saw him walk on water when he wanted to. Jesus will not let us make him just a nice guy. As C.S. Lewis pointed out decades ago, either Jesus is the greatest liar in history and has fooled more people than anyone ever, or he was insane, or he was the word made flesh dwelling among us. Either Jesus was a sham, and, and, or, or he was who he said he was, but Jesus will not let us create a third option made in our image. He will not, you, you cannot sit down and whittle Jesus down to your size so he is politically and philosophically palatable to you. He will not allow it. John tells us Jesus was the creator of all we see and know in creation. Right now, our planet is spinning around a thousand mi- on its axis a thousand miles an hour. In addition, we are hurtling through space as we circle the sun at 67,108 miles per hour. Right now, we are traveling 87 times faster than the speed of sound. Anybody need Dramamine? <laughs> and in one day, every person in this room and on this planet will, tra- will travel 1,600,000 miles as we circle the sun. And on top of that, the Milky Way, of which we are a part, we are on one of its outer arms. The Milky Way, as it spins, is spinning us 483,000 miles per second. Think about that. Because, and why? Why does it all work together? Why does it all seem normal? Why is it all so dependable? Because, as John tells us, the Logos is running the things he created. Right now, trillions of chemical reactions are taking place in your body every second of every day. And while this is happening, your brain is performing up to 10 quadrillion calculations per second. Think about that. Some of you thought you were stupid. Think about what your brain's doing right now. And as I said this summer, so most of you wouldn't have heard this, what is going on inside us is one million times more complex than what is going on in the rest of the universe simultaneously right now. Think about it. That's how special you are. That, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. This universe is 90 billion light years across. It has galaxies and planets and moons and supernovas. It has all kinds of things in it. And guess what? What's inside of you, what you are, is more complex than something 90 billion light years wide. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that you pay attention to him? And the person responsible for all of it, get this, is here today and among us, touching our spirits with his right now. Holy mackerel. Shazam! Great balls of fire. Goodness gracious sakes alive. Hallelujah. John develops certain themes throughout this book over and over again. And the two main themes I think he develops throughout this book, except aside from describing who Jesus was himself, are the themes of light and of life. In John 4, he, the gospel writers write, through, through, through the word was life. 
and the life was the light of all people. You see, for John, darkness stands for evil. It stands for despair. And John says that when the light came, the darkness tried to extinguish it. Herod tried to extinguish it. The Pharisees tried to extinguish it. The Sanhedrin tried to extinguish it. The Romans tried to extinguish it. The devil himself tried to extinguish it. Death tried to extinguish it. And even our sin tried to put out the light. But John says, the light could not be overcome. You cannot put out this light. This light still shines even when Jesus' own people failed to recognize him 2,000 years ago. Jesus came to dispel the darkness. He came to overcome every act of violence, every act of injustice, every prejudice, every lie, every act of adultery, every addiction. He came to break the power of sin in all its forms. But most of all, he came to show us the way to separate truth from lies, to separate reality from fake news. For Jesus saw us as lost sheep. He saw us as blind people stumbling around in the darkness. He came to find us like any good shepherd would. He came to wrap his arms around us and carry us to guide us back home. He came to be a lamp unto our feet. He came to bring us the light. And this word light will just repeat it over and over and over and over through this gospel. But just as importantly, and maybe more important, Jesus came to bring us life. This word is used, life, the way Jesus, that I'm talking about in this scripture. It's 46 times in the gospel of John. And it's not just any kind of life. He came to bring us eternal life. And for John, get this, eternal life starts now. It is a state of being. Right now, according to John, you are either walking around dead or you're walking around alive. It's one of those two things. Dead walking people are people who are disconnected from God. They are lost and blind and self-destructive and selfish and trapped in their own egos and connected to their own resources. Live walking people are connected to God, saturated with his love, walking in his truth, sustained and carried by his spirit, living for a kingdom that will never end and living for more than just themselves. That's what John considers the life that Jesus brought. Without Christ as a source of all life, we are dead and we are getting deader. And even though our natural bodies may be functioning and our heart pumping and we have excellent blood pressure, what John considers is if you don't have Jesus, you're still dead. It doesn't matter. We are like fish out of water. One of my favorite examples is by Max Lucado in his book, When God Whispers Your Name. And he gives this, I've used this illustration at Christmas before, but I love this illustration because it tells us exactly what John was getting at. He writes, take a fish and put him on a beach. Watch his gills gasp for air and his scales dry. Is this fish happy? No. How do you make him happy? Do you cover this fish with a mountain of cash? Do you get him a beach chair and sunglasses and slather him with sunblock? Do you bring him a Playfish magazine along with a martini? 
Do you wardrobe him with a double-breasted fin or people-skin shoes? Of course not. How do you make a beached fish happy? You put him back in his element. That's what you do. You put him back in the water. He will never, ever be happy on the beach simply because he was not made for the beach. Indeed so. The same is true for you and me. We will never be happy living apart from the one who made us. Just as a fish was made to live in water, we were made to live in close fellowship with God, and nothing can take the place of it. Jesus is our element. We were made for him. We were made to be with him. And without him, you are dead. God came to bring us eternal life. And eternal life starts right here, right now in this planet. Eternal life is not about the length of life. You see, everybody lives forever. Everybody's spirit never dies. Whether you're in heaven or in hell, you will exist forever. Eternal life is about the quality of life you live, not the quantity of years you live. It is about life as we were meant to live it. It's not about the length of our existence, but the level of our existence. Eternal life does not start when they lower you in the grave. It does not start when you pass through the gates of heaven. I got news for you. Eternal life started when you got back in the water. Eternal life started when Jesus came into you and he brought his spirit into you and he took your dead spirit and made it alive. Every Christian is a resurrected Christian with eternal life flowing through them. Eternal life starts when we become new creatures with new natures. I got news for you. I stopped dying 45 years ago on June the 25th. I stopped dying. Now you go, wait a minute. You obviously are not headed the right direction physically. I know that. Things keep falling off and hair keeps growing in places I never imagined it could grow. You know, you're getting old when, when the barber starts trimming your ears and you're not. Never mind. For you young guys, wait. <laughs> hmm. 25, 45 years ago, Jesus came into me and put a halt to death. My body is dying. My outer man is dying, but my inner man is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. I am more alive today than I was 45 years ago, despite what I look like. I have been put back in the ocean. I am swimming. Hallelujah. Without God, we are just fish on the beach. We are grounded. Without God, we have no purpose. We are lost and stuck in the sand and going nowhere. We are slowly dying, suffocating on our own sin and limitations and, and failures. I have news for you today. Jesus Christ resurrected us all. Our bodies will fall off, but one day in installment two, they'll be resurrected. But right now, in a very real sense, we have been resurrected. And God is our oxygen. His love is the ocean in which we swim. Praise the Lord. Let me say it again. Holy mackerel. <laughs> Great balls of fire. Goodness gracious sakes alive. Hallelujah. Eric McTaxis, who's a 
well-known Christian writer, said that his friend Frederica Matthews Green told him this story. She also was a great writer. And by the way, after I preached this, John Hawbecker told me he had met Frederica. Frederica was raised in a nominally Christian home, but rejected her parents' faith in her early teens. She concluded that somehow God was the energy of life itself, and the various world religions were poetic attempts to express that truth. She said she would simply take from each religion what she liked and ignore what she disliked. But during her senior year in college, she gained an insight into herself that startled her. She said, I realized that my selections were inevitably conditioned by my own tastes, my own prejudices, and my blind spots. She says, I was patching together a Frankenstein God made exactly in my own image. And he would never be taller than five foot one. <laughs> she said, I realized if I wanted to grow beyond my own meager wisdom, I would have to submit to a faith bigger than I was and accept its instruction. So she chose Hinduism. She liked the vivid poetry in it. She liked some of the tenets in it. And to be honest, she said, I chose it in part because my friends would really think I'm cool if I said I was a Hindu. Christianity didn't even make the lineup. She said, I considered it infantile and, at, and an inadequate religion. I found it embarrassing and childish, probably because I associated it with my own child, naive childhood. Not many years after graduation, Frederica met and married her husband, Gary, in a charmingly typical hippie wedding. You know that, out in the woods and sandals and flowers in your hair. It is beautiful, Philip. That's exactly right. I'm about to tear up here. <laughs> Immediately after the wedding, she and Gary, her husband, took off for Europe. And on June the 20th, 1974, Frederica and Gary took a ferry from Wales to the Irish coast, and then they hitched hiked up to Dublin. They found a cheap hotel, and later that afternoon, they decided to take a walk and see some sights. They were in what seemed to be the business district when they stumbled upon a church and decided to take a look inside. They were tourists. That's what tourists do. Frederica was separated from Gary and admired the stained glass windows and the stonework. She was into all of that. Eventually, she says, I came upon a small side altar, and there was a white marble statue of Jesus with his arms held low and open. You know what I'm talking about. You see it. And his heart was exposed in his chest. His heart was outward, with his twined with thorns and flames shooting out of his heart. Frederica explains that the statue depicted a vision that a French nun had witnessed in 1675. The nun heard Jesus say, Behold the heart which has so loved mankind. Frederica will never be able to explain exactly what happened next. But suddenly, this young woman, so hostile to Christianity, found herself on her knees in front of that statue. She said, I could hear an interior voice speaking to me. Not with my ears. It was more like a radio inside my head suddenly clicked on. The voice was both intimate and authoritative, and it filled me. It said this, I am your life. You think that your life is your name, your personality, your history, but that is not your life. I am your life. You think your life 
is the fact that you are alive and your heart is beating and your breath goes in and out. But not even that is your life. I am your life. I am the foundation of everything else in your life. After this, Frederica stood up feeling rather shaky. I can't imagine why. She said it was like sitting quietly in your living room and having the roof blown off while you sat there. That's a very appropriate illustration these days. She said, I didn't have, have any doubt who the I was who was speaking to me. And it wasn't someone I was eager to get to know at that moment. If someone had asked me a half hour earlier, I would have said I wasn't sure that fellow even ever lived. Yet here he was. And though I didn't know him, it seemed he already knew me from the deepest inside out. I kept quiet about this for a week trying to figure it out. I didn't even tell Gary, my husband, though he must have wondered why my eyebrows kept hovering near my hairline. Frederica says that it wasn't the kind of woo-woo spiritual experience where everything goes misty and the next day you wonder if it really happened. It was, she knew dreams. This was not a dream. She, had, you know, she was a hippie. I'm sure she knew getting high, but this wasn't like that. She said it was shockingly real as if I had encountered a new dimension of reality I had never known existed before. In that explosive moment, she said, I found that Jesus was realer than anything I'd ever encountered. In fact, he was the touchstone of reality. It left me with a great hunger for more, so that my whole life now is leaning towards him, questing for him, striving to break down the walls inside me that shelter me from his gaze. Suddenly, Jesus consumed her life on a new level. Does that sound like John, what John was getting at? Life beyond ourselves? Life that cannot be manufactured or controlled? Life on a whole new dimension? Russell Moore said it well when he wrote this. He said, for too long, we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into their lives. Guess what? Or into our life. And he says, guess what? Jesus doesn't want our life. Our lives are a wreck. Our lives suck. Jesus doesn't come to be an, a little add-on to our lives. Jesus calls us into his life. And his life isn't boring or purposeless or static. It's wild and exhilarating and unpredictable. God doesn't want to be a little addition to us. He says, get in the flow and my love, my life will sweep you into eternity. It is life that calls us to trust Trust Him, walk with Him, listen for the one who lives inside us, believe in His love and life, and believe they're operating right here, right now. It calls us to know Him and follow Him. We carry His very presence with us. We carry His very, let me say it again, holy mackerel. <laughs> Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. He is here. We were made for what is the essence of heaven, which is the life of God flowing right through us. Eternal life is in this room. Eternal life is here and now. It is God life pouring into us now. You are the sons and daughters of God. Our main job is to pay attention and receive his life. The spirit is here. Christ is in us and among us, and our main job is to take what he is giving. God 
is our oxygen. Prayer is breathing in that oxygen. God is our food. We're going to take some in just a few minutes. We are called to eat him up and drink him down. He said, I got living water and I am the living bread. Eat some. His life is in us and through us. His life has changed us. We are called to live in a whole new dimension, but so often we just stay in the physical dimension. We just stay with the immediate. We just stay with the, the, what's drastic or what's, what's, you know, a crisis. But we are called to take him in, breathe him in, drink him in, moment by moment by moment, day after day after day. And it puts life in a whole new level. And so we're going to take communion. But before we take communion... I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I want you to do one small thing. And if it makes you feel comfortable, you can consider it an experiment. I want you to be quiet yourself and focus within yourself, and I want you to receive whatever the Spirit of Jesus is giving you, and we'll take two or three minutes, but I want you to be open to receiving whatever he wants to give you right now. Holy Spirit, thank you for being here today. Thank you for being within us. Lord, may the attitude we've had in these last few minutes be the attitude with which we approach your life. Help us, Lord, to pay attention to our own spirits and souls. Help us to pay attention to what you're doing in the world around us. Help us to get in the flow of your life. In Jesus' name, amen.
Today we are going to do communion for a second time in ways that uh, uh, are unique to us. We're going to do communion in a circle around this sanctuary, okay? And I'll say more about that. Well, I think I'll say it now. <laughs> There's these stations up here. We want you to come and get the bread and get the cup and then take your place along the walls or up the, at the front or in front of the soundboard back there, but make a big circle. And we want you to hold the cup and hold the bread until we can all partake of it together in the circle, okay? We are not going to release you by rows. We, we, you just come up when you want to come up and take the bread and the cup. Now, if you are uh, unable to stand in the circle, uh, perhaps someone would be willing to help pull a chair out and you can sit in the circle. But we would like everyone, whether, you know, even if you don't want to partake in communion, we'd like for everyone to be in the circle and included, okay? If you take communion, we simply ask that you love the Lord. You don't have to be a member of this church or brethren in Christ. And I also remind you that uh, the bread, we, if, if some of you are allergic to gluten, in little plastic packets, we have gluten-free bread. We don't want to make anybody sick. And so with all those instructions... We are now preparing ourselves to take the communion. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Any weak people here? Come not, be come not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. The communion is now beginning. You may come when you're ready.
Again, you can come. We'd like the circle to so come and join the circle right across from the across the front too. Crunch and action up front here. Let us do the responsive reading together. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. Let us follow his example. Brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup, blessed it, and gave it to his disciples. We do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. As we conclude this service, we're going to sing Amazing Grace because that is truly what we're celebrating here. And uh, when the service is over, I will, I will do a benediction after we sing Amazing Grace. And then I want you to shake at least three people's hands and tell them God loves them. And you might, okay? And uh, if you're feeling frisky, you can give them a hug, all right? Go, go ahead. If you, you know, we're wild and crazy. So...
Before I do the benediction, I would like to say that when this benediction is over and you've done your handshaking and blessing and hugging, uh, there will be uh, intercessors at the front for any prayer requests you may need, even though the, the service is technically over. So if you need prayer today, we don't want you to leave without it. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for life. And Lord, you had to die to give us that life. What an exchange. Lord, we praise you that your spirit is here. We praise you that you have changed us foundationally in our hearts and in our spirits. We praise you, Lord, that we can walk in eternal life right here, right now. Help us to do it, Lord Jesus. Help us to pay attention to your spirit within us and your movements all around us. Help us to walk in life. In Jesus' name, amen.